You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. So in this episode, we're joined by Nick Benes, who's a qualified mental health associate and former United States Marine sergeant, as well as an Iraqi combat veteran. He's the former director of business operations for Clatsop Behavioral Healthcare, a private nonprofit mental health agency located in the Columbia River in Astoria, Oregon. And he's also a certified mental health first aid instructor by the National Council for Behavioral Health, Teaching Adults and Youth Modules. His book is called Mental Health Emergencies, A First Responder's Guide to Recognizing and Handling Mental Health Crisis. So sit back and relax and get ready for another episode of Mentors for Military. And Nick and I had the opportunity to meeting last night, uh, Cap, because uh, we jumped on the call and just started talking about all kinds of different things. And I think uh, one of the cool things we started talking about is his background in writing this book that he had written about mental hygiene. And uh, thought it might be really cool because I received an Instagram, I'm sorry, an email uh, from a commander of a unit or a lieutenant in a unit that said, Hey, listen, I, I've got a, um, situations that arise where individuals may have PTSD, commit suicide, and not only am I having to um, counsel the troops, I'm also having to counsel on occasion family members. So it'd be really good if you guys could do a podcast on this. Well, I wasn't even thinking about Nick's book until uh, we started talking just last night, and it hit me that that's a great thing to actually touch on because I think so many have to deal with, one, the issues of PTSD, and then, two, with how to help those um, afflicted by it around them, and um, especially when there's a major trauma like suicide that occurs. Sorry, just to clarify. So you guys, the commander wanted to know um, regarding PTSD um, after the fact, yeah, like suicide after the fact, and Correct. Then how it affects families. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Nick, maybe this would be a great time for you to tell us a little bit about your book that uh, you wrote and some of the things that you learned because we had a really cool discussion last night about some of the the differences and of course I know Kat, you face this and trying to go through counseling and those types of things and the challenges that you find with finding the first, the right counselor, one that's not going to prescribe a whole lot of drugs, especially opioids, it's going to cause um, additional downstream effects and medic- uh, medical problems like uh, you get constipation and then you have to take drugs for constipation and then you get where you can't sleep at night. You got to take drugs to sleep and before you know it, you have a medicine cabinet full of drugs. I don't want to cut Nick off. Yeah, I've been there. I'm sure Nick's been there too, wanting to write about this. Yeah, Kat, just um, if you don't mind just sharing kind of your introduction to the mental health care system. Sure. So my I guess my PTSD story is a little different from most. I mean, it's a lot more common now because people are speaking up. But so I was uh, right when I joined the military, I was deployed to, to Iraq and over there experienced another service member. I was raped twice. And at the time, uh, PTSD was just, it was barely like a fly on the wall. Like people really didn't know about it. They really didn't understand why service members were coming back with mental health issues. Um, I was told that I was having adjustment issues, but normally with adjustment issues, there's a there's a period. There's like a stop. It's like you go through adjustment issues like for, I mean, it could last up to a while, but you can transition out of it. So I had 
multiple doctors, uh, psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, different ones through the VA and also on the civilian side tell me that rape was not considered PTSD because it wasn't, I guess, since it was related to war, it wasn't combative. So they said they had to label it something else. But, you know, later on down the road, it's any traumatic event that an individual goes through. You don't have to be getting shot at or getting blown up to experience or see, you know, your friend die to experience PTSD. It could be multiple or different traumatic events. So with that, though, like Robert was saying, you you go in for an issue or you tell them, this is what happened to me. This is what I'm experiencing. This is how it's affecting my life. And there you go. That's PTSD. Like, okay, that's great. So they offer you counseling. They offer you, like I went through, um, I went counseling for about 18 months going through exposure therapy. And for me, um, the problem with exposure therapy was I accepted the event. I just wanted to learn how to kind of bring everything to center. Like, why am I depressed? Why do I have anxiety? Like, I, I accept that it happened. Like, I'm, I am, you know, this is years after the event. I've kind of become numb to it. I realize that I have other issues to talk through, but I, you know, I wanted to figure out a way to control those effects from, like, the aftermath, you know. So they just prescribed me a bunch of medication. And, I mean, I think I would say probably over the last five years, um, I've went through a series of uh, my own therapies. I know a lot of a lot of guys and gals. It's like they don't want to admit to it, so they're just going to try whatever they can over the counter. Uh, yeah. For me, since it was rape, like one of my biggest fears was working with men in the military, and it was just an anxiety that I had that I had to overcome. And I was given the opportunity to go work with Ranger Regiment, and was completely dumbfounded by how honorable those men are. So that alone, just working with them for that year, getting introduced to that environment of camaraderie and acceptance because of who of your job instead of who you are, um, it was healing for me. Yeah. yeah, it was healing for me. So I began to trust again. So that was that kind of helped that aspect. You know, like now I can trust people. Sure. Now I just there's just other aspects that I'm still trying to deal with, and 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 now you know it's kind of like a passion for me as well. But when I got back from Afghanistan. You know, that you go from, and I'm sure this is like a huge thing with a lot of the guys that come out. It's like they're in like this such this high intense, you know, mission set. They've been around their buddies for their entire life. And all of a sudden they're dropped on the side of the road and they don't know what to do with themselves. And that's when everything starts to like get creep out and, you know, all these other mental health issues. So. For yeah. me, I went, I went back to the shrink and I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going through all this stuff. And you know, they're like, Oh yeah, it's, it's, you're definitely going through PTSD. I'm like, okay, so how am I going to combat this? And, uh, they, they prescribe me every single drug that you can imagine, uh, different anti-anxieties, you know, the, the main thing that doctors like to say and are so easy to throw pills at you for is how's your sleep? You want the hardest drug out there to help you sleep? I'll help you sleep. You know? So um, yeah. so I was on a, a bunch of different, uh, sleep medications for insomnia, for, uh, social disorder, anxiety. I mean, I was like my cabinet at the time, you know, being 28 years old, 27, 28, I'm like, geez, 
I'm like, I, you know, people with cancer don't even have this much medication. And I'm like, and they're just throwing it at me. Like if I wanted like some sort of painkiller, like, oh yeah, let me give you that, you know? So <laughs> yeah. just recently I actually went and I weaned myself off of all this medication because I was going through, and I'm sure Robert, you can attest, I met Robert a year ago and the highs and lows, I bet he can track like, oh, cat's on point and now she's not. And now she's, you know, going through you know, issues. And, you, and, and that's the thing too, like with family members and people that care about you, they don't know how to deal with it. So Robert being the nice guy that he is, he just let me go through the motions of my own healing. But now I can, I can safely say that after weaning myself off a bunch of medication on my own time, I, I'm, I'm good to go. I can still tell there's a bunch of like little things that physically and mentally that I have to deal with, but like there's clarity there now. So that's amazing. Um, well, so, but now I have like, I have the generic story that a lot of guys talk about, you know, and, and I'm, that's why I'm so intrigued is hear about your book and about what you have, you know, what your, what your goal is because mine is, especially with mental health is like, there's so many organizations and resources out there that can help with after, but I want to figure out what the hell can we do during like at on point, you know, so that's why I'm like, I'm like tickled right now to be able to talk to you. So, um, enough about my, my sad sap story on mental health. No, I, I actually want to commend you for one, for sharing that story. Um, that's super powerful and I appreciate you being comfortable to share that with us. Um, I mean, that's, that's half the battle right there, acknowledging what you're going through and, um, seems like you've got quite of education through the process, learning the do's and don'ts. And it gets really difficult when you're navigating mental health services, uh, as you could see, and as well as the medication management. Um, so I guess the reason why I'm here, I, I have a book coming out called Mental Health Emergencies. It's a first responder's guide to recognizing and handling mental health crises. Um, so I teamed up with a former colleague of mine, Michelle Hart. She's a licensed clinician social worker. She has 35 plus years in mental health. She's dealt with a lot of trauma. She's worked with veteran groups. Um, so in the book, you know, I always throw the disclaimer out there. I'm not a clinical professional. Uh, my background, I've worked in mental health when I got out of the Marine Corps. So I, I worked for directly for a psychiatrist in the Veterans Administration out in Connecticut. And that's where I got my start. I was doing some basic case management. And then I worked my way up and I worked in healthcare administration with a focus on mental health and mental health compliance. Um, so a lot of the things you brought up uh, when you're sharing your experiences, I had to troubleshoot those difficulties. Uh, what you know, a lot of people they find out when they go to see a provider and they're getting medication for a certain diagnosis. Um, it's alchemy because it you know everybody reacts to a certain medication differently. Um, the process takes a long time. You don't see results right away if it is effective. Um, there's a lot of adverse effects too, uh, you know, with health, uh, uh, you know, weight gain, um, depression. If you mix in comorbidity, if somebody's abusing substances and you're on an antidepressant, that's not a great um, cocktail to be on. Um, so, a lot of that's difficulty. There's the stigma attached to mental health uh, in the military community in general. 
Um, so as an administrator, I had a lot of free extra time on my hands. Um, a lot of times our clinicians were carrying large caseloads. They were extremely busy. It usually took months to get in, to get scheduled to see a psychiatrist if you were doing medication management. So they sent me off to training for mental health first aid with the National Council of Behavioral Health. And it's an eight-hour curriculum where we educate people on just basic steps on how to recognize the signs and symptoms of a mental illness. And we teach people not to embrace that label of the diagnosis. So, you know, if somebody has bipolar, um, we teach you not to accept uh, that, you know, you're bipolar. And um, the reality is everybody's experiences mental health concerns. So anxiety, depression, we all have it. Um, so I think that's where, I, you know, just to start off with, um, you know, we teach just basic um, steps on how to help people through a crisis. Uh, if you have a friend or a family member, a loved one uh, with an issue or concern, uh, what are these action steps to help you through that process? Um, we also discuss how to navigate the mental health care system, too. So I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about last night, I think that was um, interesting is that, you know, when you start thinking about going to talk to somebody or getting help, if you're in the service, and especially if you're in the soft community, uh, it could be a career ending decision. And that's kind of unfortunate, whereas the conventional military, it's probably becoming a little bit more acceptable. Uh, commanders are learning <clears throat> certain behaviors. They're beginning to identify uh, kind of leading indicators of things that are showing or manifesting themselves that they may need to um, talk with the individual more about or uh, ask family members or whatever to help them seek that uh, that help and assistance. Uh, but for some, there's still that, you know, stigmas out there, like you had mentioned within the military, that they're just concerned about whether or not it is going to be career-ending. And, and in a lot of cases, they just want to get some answers, get clarity, and get back to doing what they love to do. Yeah, that's a great point, Robert. Um, you know, it's hard for me to comment on this because I'm on the fringe and, I, and I'm not sure how the integration's working with active duty members. From what I'm gathering from friends and family that are still serving, there's still quite a stigma attached for somebody that, you know, in the spec ops community and yeah. the pilots. Absolutely. Uh, you know, fixed rotor pilots, they want to stay clear of it because it's that perception's reality, right? Even yeah. if you're going to see a therapist for something minor like depression or anxiety, um, you know, people tie their own stories to that. And uh, and we we understand that, you know, healthcare is confidential, but, uh, you know, it's still when you're contained in a small community on a base and you walk over to see the the chaplain or the uh, clinician that's on call, uh, it becomes difficult. You don't have that privacy like you do in the civilian sector. This course that you go through, the mental health first aid, this course is to help the people that go through it to identify if the individual is in a state of crisis or if they need assistance. Now, are these people, they're not, they're not clinicians, but then, like you said, they offer resources after the fact, correct? Yes. Yep. And it just kind of okay. opens you up to mental health. Um, you know, for some of us that are lucky, we go through school, we get exposed to, you know, a basic psychology class, a 101. 
Um, so you have an understanding of the different diagnosis and labels. Um, they've stuck around for quite some time. Um, so what, what we try to do, my book has a different emphasis. Um, so we try to distill the certain topics down to make it less jargony. Um, you know, you could find a lot of these answers on, uh, through the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Service Manual. And we always advise people that you want to stay away from researching mental illness uh, because I think we could all identify with what we read in those books. Uh, same thing with online. It's not a good idea if you are meeting with a therapist and you start discussing certain topics that you go off and do your own research. So a lot of it's very simple tactics on you know non-judgmental listening, how to be mindful in the moment. Uh, we give a chapter on mindfulness activities. Um, so when I came back from my deployment to Iraq, I was, you know, suffering from some s severe mania and, you know, was always operating on a high tempo. Some great things came out of that. I was really successful in business because I was going around the clock, you know, sleeping a couple hours a night. So I was getting a lot more done than the average person. Uh, but, you know, I definitely crashed and burned a few times um, through that process. And it took me a while to to become resilient and get out of that when I came off deployment because I was trying to recreate that tempo. Um, so just real simple tactics on, you know, how to listen to somebody. I think we, we all do a poor job of listening. Um, so if you have a friend or family member expressing concerns, you know, learn how to listen, uh, use reflections, repeat back what they're telling you. So people that are trained in this, this mental health first aid, they can use it for themselves. Or if you become like a train the trainer type of situation, my, my wheels are just turning right now. Um, because this is, I was just recently talking to my husband about, you know, integrating mental health, like more towards the active duty side and like how you stated before there's still a stigma there's still a lot of people that are aware of their symptoms that just won't get help because of possibly losing their job or their career so i've been i've been thinking about this thing where if, if you if a team of mental health providers like kind of exactly like what you're doing you know training these individuals to be mindful or, um and and use these resources to help themselves but the, the only way that I think that in the service now where we can have accountability of the personnel is to kind of, you know, hit every single individual. And I've always thought, like, my, my husband's like, well, that's going to take a lot of funds and a lot of people, you know, and they already, Robert, you'll have to help me with the, the name of that program because I can just not, I can't remember. It's a recent one where they send soldiers like team leaders or squad leaders to become like more aware of mental health issues with, within their soldiers. You know what that's called? No, I, can't I don't. The Are you talking about, is it, it's a mandatory training program? Well, they, they it's like a, another label. Yeah. You know, you have like your, your, oh God, I wish I could remember what it's called. I know called. what you're talking about. Inside the unit, you have individuals that are responsible for um, certain activities uh, like, you know, uh, one might be assigned in a unit as a career counselor, even though they haven't officially right. gone to like a career counseling school, but they work with the career counselors on the post 
uh, to be able to help people re-enlist and give them some feedback or whatever. Then you have people who I think they're responsible for being like the sexual harassment person, uh, go-to person. Uh, could right. Be, right. Is that what you're talking about? Some Something like that. Right. But it's like that person or that task or duty is normally put on the shoulders of like a squad leader right. uh, or team leader. So you're giving this individual extra duty on top of everything that everything else they have to do. And looking at it on like a special ops side, like their, their responsibilities is so are already so high, you know, giving them that extra duty is just going to make things a little bit worse than they are. So, you know, I've been going around with this idea in my head about what if, like you even said, Nick, how, you know, the clinicians are so jam packed with, with reports and cases that they can't nail everyone at the same time. You know, it's like, um, and, and people slip through the cracks, you know, they won't make their new, their appointments or they won't keep up with their medications or whatever, yeah, whatever have you. Great. So, but if there was a team or maybe like a program, like what you have on here of civilians who are trained specifically in mental health and say, there's a, this is just me coming up with a bunch of crazy stuff. There's a clinician that is in charge of this team that these team members are tasked out to units or battalions where they eliminate the stigma where they meet with every single individual having a basic conversation like you know not you know getting away from like who they are like yes i am this title in the unit you know me as helping you with mental health you know i'm going to come bug you about how you're feeling you know i'm going to come and tell you or like drill you on how what's going on in your life and what your home life is but they do it with every single person so and they and they're with these units or platoons throughout, like, say they're, they're contracted out to these units for a set period of time that they're there doing these, like, check-ins, like, before a major training exercise, and then after a major training exercise, like, deploying with them. So, say they go through a mission where one of their guys dies, and they say with PTSD, if you can nip it in the bud at the 30-day mark where people can actually express their emotions and their feelings, that their issues won't be as harsh. So, I what I, like, you know great. what, and I, you know, and that, that's like what I just, if you can, that's what I'm like, if you could be proactive in how you said, it's like, you need to take care of your mental health, like you take care of your body, you know, you need to have the support system like you do with anything, you know, it's, it's, it's just something that you need to take care of, but having somebody who takes away the stigma and you cut like say you're actually having issues, but you're this sergeant first class that's taking care of, or and I don't know the marine terminology for rank, so I'm just using army. I apologize. Yeah, no problem. But you have this, you have this platoon sergeant commander that is required, just like private whoever, to come in and talk to you, and you're like, yeah, I feel overloaded, stress, all this stuff, and then just like you said, like you can offer these resources, like hey, let's talk it through, let's figure out ways to manage your stress. Let's vocalize what's going on in your brain so that you can, you know, compartmentalize what you need to do to be a better you and not to come home and drink yourself to death or beat your kids in life. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, I think there's a bit like of a, you, there's a bit of a cultural change though, that you're kind of describing too, because I mean, let's face it, sure. when you start talking about the especially the positions that we were referring to earlier, the soft community pilots, those types of things. If they have any inkling that there could be um, something that boomerangs back off of what they say, they're, they're not going to offer any, you know, if you come up to me and you're one of these resources that you're describing, 
I'm going to tell you everything's great. You know, everything's peachy. Right. You know, I'm good to go. You know, yeah, things are good. Uh, when in reality, I might be dying inside or something may be eating at me from a longer term perspective, like you you described earlier. Um, so I think that's part of the challenge as a as a leader, and especially as we were describing earlier, whether you're a platoon leader or a commander, you want to be able to offer help. You have genuine sincerity about your approach and and wanting to assist somebody. Yet there is this stigma, there is this culture um, that may not even be in a soft unit, but it may actually be in a conventional unit um, that just considers himself kind of high speed and, and we can't let that kind of stuff affect us on a daily basis. I think that's where the challenge is going to be because as much as you want to try to help the unit even after something occurs, I think it's challenging as a leader to express that other than what he probably or she probably does in terms of, you know, addressing it out front, talking about, hey, we need to talk to one another, open communication, you know, yada, yada, yada. But what, you know, you're describing something that could be an active participant, but that's a cultural change. That's that's really a, that's where the military actually recognizes it like they did with all the other training that became mandatory. Where you had, but then you know, none of it worked. I, uh, well, none true. Of that crap worked. You're yeah. right, and that's my concern here. <laughs> yeah. Is that how do you? Yeah, yeah, how do you now do it to where? And maybe you Nick, force you know, them. Yeah. Well, then if you make it mandatory, it never makes you good either, because you know. Well, no, it's not that it's mandatory. It's not like a. I'm, what I'm talking about is not like a school or something. It's like a, a 10 minute conversation where you're embedded into these units, where you know, like the mission tempo. You're out there sleeping in the tents with them and and doing these assessments in the field where they're you don't take like you take five minutes from their gym time or their chow time or whatever it is that we're honestly, if they, and it's, it's, you can't for like HIPAA violation, you can't say like, Oh, I got to send you the shrink. You know what I mean? Like, no. If, and you have to disclose, of course, like with any counselor, it's like if you're suicidal or harm, suicidal or homicidal, then yes, I'm going to have to say something. But other than that, it's free reign, man. You can tell me how, pissed off or how this mission didn't go like this or whatever i mean of course you're gonna have to get the security clearances or whatever to go along with it but if you can erase that stigma and constantly be going in and prying into these people's hard shells because you're going to be checked like like i said like before training exercise during after before deployment and then they you can say like hey do you think your wife or your your kids want to come and sit in like i can i like my commander clinician psychologist psychiatrist so and so I can refer you to them and we'll, we'll make an appointment and sit down and talk with you. Or I can just sit down and talk with you. And then if it comes to the point where you need like a long-term mental health, um, you know, like exposure therapy or you need medication, then then you take the steps towards that. But if you're, I guess my whole thing is like, if you can just constantly be drilling this stuff into their head, because just like, I mean, Robert, you can, like, we've had PTSD conversations multiple times, and it's like maintenance, not mm-hmm. only for ourselves, but for our listeners. And we always, like, after we have these conversations, we always have people come up that are like, oh, thank you so, like you said, like that commander was like, hey, what am I going to do? You know, and it's, it's like, you need somebody that's not in the service, that someone that isn't biased, because they can put this task on team leader so-and-so, but the problem is, is that even though they're trained in this, you still have some sort of connection or there's still some sort of like, Hey, I know you're, you know, you're doing what you should do because that's what a squad leader should do. So I'm just going to tell you like, yeah, everything's great. I'm fine. Cause I, my aspirations are to be where you are right now, like to be in that position. But if you have like 
mental health first aid person cat who is just bugging the shit out of you all the time. Like, <laughs> seriously, well, I, right? I think it's it's based on how you're going to be incentivized or what kind of reporting mechanisms you're going to have, as with anything. Because, I mean, yeah. how, how that's going to be aligned is going to be um, your goal and how you're going to treat it. And not everybody's going to be a cat, by the way. You know, Nick may be entirely oh, different. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, Nick may no, be entirely different. Cat is yeah, super resilient and amazing. So Yeah, and, and Nick may ac- approach things differently than Robert. And so, of course, there then has to Absolutely. be. Yeah, so you don't want to create it too where it's, it's too rigid. You just want to have, I think, what you're describing, tools in your toolbox that you can then glean from depending upon the situation and apply those skills. And some of this, Nick, may actually be within the book that you described. And I'm kind of curious uh, because some of the focus within the book is how to do this within schools. I mean, we have traumas within schools where, you know, you have active shooter situations or uh, at the workplace and and those types of things. So what are some of the ways that you guys describe ways for these leaders or communities and stuff to help the community in total uh, rebound? Sure. So I think Kat does a great job of actually describing the thesis of mental health emergency is my book. Um, <laughs> she hits <Sorry>. on a lot of, <laughs> she hits on a lot of the buzzwords. Um, listening to the two of you, I actually subscribe to both ideas. Uh, one, I love the vision that Kat has of having a clinical professional embedded in a unit. Um, I also sympathize with Robert because I understand it, you know, these huge cultural shifts. Military is usually the last adopter, especially the Marine Corps. Um, they always get the hand-me-downs for technical (laughs) training, the last ones on the receiving end. Uh, so I see both sides of the argument. Um, some of the quick things we hit on in the book is the goal. One, I want to dispel, dispel stigmas, right? Um, I want to get away from the language that people with mental illness that are suffering with mental illness are automatically dangerous. Yes. Good point. You know, that, that gets sensationalized in the media and Hollywood. Obviously there's a percentage of people suffering, um, you know, that go and shoot it, you know, they shoot in an open crowd. Um, so you have those, handful of cases but uh, across the board even to that regard i mean i think um i I mean wouldn't you classify in some cases ptsd as there's variations much like there's a pain point so on a scale of one to ten there could be variations of pain someone may say my pain's a seven others may say their pain's a three when they when a physician asks the same thing is kind of true with ptsd in in relation to how they're dealing with it where they're at in the stage uh or uh, this point in time, as Kat talked about it, it's never really going to go away, but sometimes it might be a seven and other times it might be a three. Um, it it yep. could just vary. So it's, you don't want to also classify everybody as being a 10 all the Absolutely. time. Yep. You nailed it. I, I think that's a great point. Um, Kat mentioned this earlier too. Um, PTSD seems to be branded with the military in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you say PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you automatically associate that with combat. Uh, but the reality, just like Kat said, is anyone uh, you know experiencing physical, ver- verbal abuse, adverse events in childhood. I mean, this is this is all PTSD. If you get in a car accident, you you break your arm uh, riding a bicycle. Um, these are examples of PTSD. 
Um, so in the book, we talk, you know, we want to increase mental health literacy. Um, so some tricks, you know, when I was a squad leader with the Marines, I, I would always look at the welfare of my Marines, right? See if they're, they have good hygiene, they're healthy, they're, you know, doing their physical exercise, they're staying in shape, those basic requirements. But other things I was doing naturally without even thinking about it. Now I look back in retrospect, I was doing it on a daily basis when we would step in front of them for a morning formation. You know, I'm looking for mood swings, uh, social withdrawal, any disorientation. Are they being overstimulated? Um, How's their social life, you know, outside of work? Are they experimenting with substances? Are they drinking too much alcohol? Um, because, you know, nicotine, alcohol, a lot of these, um, soldiers, Marines now are hyped up on energy drinks. I yeah. mean, those, those are methamphetamines in a can, right? Yep. Um, so if you're dealing with a mental health concern and you're pumping ca caffeine into your system, alcohol, um, you're going to have a lot of difficulty. And so that's that comorbidity piece. So. In the mental health emergencies book, we just try to wake people up to that stuff, um, have awareness of how you're behaving. Um, you could control a lot of these factors in your health just by controlling what you're putting into your body. Uh, I know when I drink too much coffee, I'm amped up. Um, you know, the anxiety level kicks in. Um, so they always say when you're experiencing anxiety, right, it's a uh, fear of the unknown perceived threats. You're looking ahead to the future. You're not mindful, right? You're thinking about what's going on with, hey, that job interview tomorrow morning, or hey, I got a deadline I, I have to meet for work. So you're stressing about that, right? You're not living in the moment. Depression, you're focused on the past, right? Um, I have a lot of buddies right now that I served over in Iraq with are struggling. Uh, you know, they're extremely depressed. Uh, they're abusing alcohol, drugs, and they're really kind of stuck in the past. They're stuck on that moment when we were serving. We were in our early 20s, still going through our moratorium. And it's difficult for me to watch this because I'm having conversations and it's, you know, a grown man or a grown woman in their late 40s, early 50s. And I, I feel like I'm talking to that 19-year-old guy or woman that, you know, uh, we started off as young Marines. And uh, so I see that struggle on a day to day. It's either looking to the future or to the past. And uh, so we do, we talk about simple tactics on how to be mindful, you know, breathing techniques. One thing I do for myself is that I do a lot of yoga. Um, I also have a book coming out on the 29th tactical mobility. It's a yoga yoga and mindfulness book that I wrote with a famous Navy SEAL, Stuart Smith, and Gwen Lawrence, who's a famous yogi. And I've, I've been her student for the last 15 years, and that's helped me quite a bit um, be present in my mind and body and uh, learn to focus in the moment and not be stressed out of the unknown and, and fixated on the past. Um, so Kat brings up a great point, you know, if if some of these squad leaders and leaders could could look at Marines or soldiers, airmen, if they're having social withdrawal is try to find 
get some help for that person. You know, they may not be receptive to go speak to somebody, but if you can lend a, an ear to listen to that person and be a friend, you're a support system. Um, you know, a lot of people that are depressed, they want to isolate. So the best thing to get them out of that fog is to, you know, get them socialized and, and active. Um, so activities like martial arts, hiking, I do a lot of that. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah. So what would you do in a situation if you did have, um, you know, a soldier, airman, marine, sailor that had PTSD? And as much as you tried to identify those leading indicators and you tried to head that off and thought that you were giving that individual uh, the correct help and, and assistance and everything, they end up committing suicide. How then do you help, you know, your team, your organization and even those family members cope with that that situation and what occurred. So that's that's the part where we throw out disclaimers. Um, you know, we give you action steps on how to assess for risk, uh, suicidal ideation thoughts. So if somebody's telling you that they're suicidal, they have a plan. Um, this is the part where you don't keep it confidential. And you tell them, you know, I have a commitment to keeping you safe. I have to tell somebody, um, you know, you've, you've told me that, Hey, you, you want to commit suicide. You have a plan. So next step, we instruct people to, you know, pick up the phone, you know, call emergency services. Don't leave that individual alone. If they're expressing those feelings, uh, it's your responsibility to, to stay there with that person. If you're not able to stay there, uh, find somebody that's reliable that could sit down with that person. Um, so we teach basic common sense. Uh, if you see somebody that's in distress, they're having auditory or visual hallucinations, they're experiencing psychosis, which could be, um, you know, a young soldier, a young Marine. Uh, it usually hits in the early 20s, uh, just could be out of nowhere. Uh, some cases it could be induced by hyperintelligence or uh, substance abuse, um, s- severe traumatic events. So just like in basic first aid, you want to get to that, that person to a safe spot. You know, if you're in the middle of an intersection, use common sense, right? Find, get that person to a quiet spot, sit down on a park bench. Um, we teach just basic psychology on body language. I mean, that's a good thing mm-hmm. too with listening skills, right? You bet. When you show somebody that you're listening, you repeat back what you're hearing uh, to them. It shows that you're acknowledging that you're you know, you're showing empathy. Same thing with body language. Um, you know, drill instructors, drill sergeants, and boot camp. They have their psychologies with the hands on the hips, arms crossed. You want to have more comfortable body language. Eye um, contact. Yeah. Nonverbal communication. Yeah. Nonverbal communication. Um, you know, law enforcement uses this often. Some mm-hmm. people are really receptive to the, the hand on the shoulder. Other people are not comfortable with you getting in their space. So you really have to kind of feel that out. And um, so the hope is to increase mental health literacy, open people up to you know basic common sense when you're working with individuals. Uh, if they're sharing feelings and stuff about their past of mental health issues, concerns, 
you know, you could keep it a secret with them, but if it gets to that point where they're having suicidal ideations, thoughts, they have a plan, it's your responsibility to take it to that next step and get them the professional help. Um, I think this is great. And, and what I really like about this is that this has become a lot of your passion in trying to help um, give back or help veterans or individuals that are suffering with these types of uh, traumatic events. And I mean, you think about your beginnings, um, not only were you in the Marine Corps and stuff, but you were talking about your hypervigilance. Let's face it, you became an entrepreneur and created the wiffle ball of all things. Yes. Yeah. So I actually created a big league wiffle ball, the tournaments uh, that traveled around the country. Yeah. Um, so we did uh, fundraisers for Major League Baseball, the Boston Red Sox, Arizona Diamondbacks, and we were on ESPN. And it was a successful run. And a lot of that success came from that hypomania. You know, I came back from Iraq. I was so used to that high tempo. I mean, I was going through uh, graduate school and working a full-time job on top of that to supplement my income when I was creating that startup company. Um, so I was burning it on both ends and, uh, you know, I was a train wreck in my early to mid twenties. Um, I was working for that psychiatrist at the veterans administration and we had, uh, it was pretty progressive at the time. We were actually doing yoga and mindfulness and breathing uh, groups with veterans from the Vietnam era. And, you know, I saw a lot of these guys suffering. And uh, my, life, my life at that time was paralleling what they were suffering with. And I, I didn't realize it until I, you know, crashed and burned. And um, now working in the mental health system, I've you know, I've worked with professionals. I've had the great opportunity to go through that training. And, um, you know, I've worked with law enforcement that's really high speed. They've been exposed to Chrysler's and training uh, programs. Um, San Antonio, Texas is doing a really excellent job of this. They embed clinicians with their patrol officers. So when they go out on calls, they're not, you know, yeah. you know, um, shooting somebody with a stun gun right off the bat. Um, you know, they have a clinician there that could, you know, dial them down. And it's, it's amazing because you're not bogging down the law enforcement system because you run into an issue that somebody is suffering. You don't have many options. You either go to the emergency room or the prison, the local jail, and you're tying up those services. And that's not a great place for somebody that's suffering. Um, so if you could get that person off the street into a crisis respite facility where they could rehab themselves, get stable within the 72 hour time period and get back to living a healthy life, uh, that's, that's powerful. There's your model cat uh, right there. Uh, well, what I was thinking, this what you're saying, which is incredible because, uh, about a year ago I was going through the, uh, EMT course and we did a bunch of ride alongs and everything and. One thing I notice, even with just talking to firefighters or paramedics, law enforcement afterwards, is they, the burnout rate is so high. And they get so sick and tired of people calling, like, their thumbs hurt and they have, like, a hangnail where they want to go in there and literally hurt their thumbs, you know, because they just, they're, you know, <laughs> yeah. they're misusing the services. But, like, how you were saying how they bring in these clinicians on ride-alongs, especially if you get, like, someone who's, super hyped up on getting a call it's their first call or whatever it is that that i wouldn't say burden but that responsibility 
is left to a professional. It's not put on the hands of, um, it's kind of like, yes, you can deal with this because it makes me upset that we are on this call in the first place. So it kind of gives the, the support or the emergency services a break. It kind of takes away that anger and frustration that they deal with on a daily basis, where as someone who is trained to not internalize what another person is going through, but to actually help that other person, like everyone is winning, and especially the person in crisis, because they're getting the attention that they need. And you can, like you said, you're, you're trained in a way to speak to people and understand their body language and understand the circumstances to where you can relay this to the emergency services and the communication is just flowing easily and it's not like a quick, okay, you're not, you don't really need anything, but I have to go through the motions to help you and I don't want to, which increases the burnout rate for these guys. So yeah. that's great. I think that's amazing. I would love to see the statistics on, or just some of the testimony on some of those guys that go out there and are like, yes, <laughs> thank you for coming out there with me. Oh, that's Absolutely. amazing. I didn't know that they did that. That's great. Yeah. So, Nick, what are some of the ways in which people can find your book? I think you just said that it's uh, now recently available. Sure. So it's available for pre-order now on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and the title is Mental Health Emergencies. And I co-authored it with uh, Michelle Hart, who's a licensed clinician social worker. Uh, it's also being carried at uh, Target.com, Target stores, and uh, we're really excited about it. And uh, we're actually getting uh, some responses from uh, National Guard uh, over in Connecticut. They're going to be handing out the books to some of their platoons to to review. And I'm really excited about that. So I hope it makes an impact. And I think this would be amazing for not only the, com- the military community, but also the community that, that you know, houses these individuals. So um I was looking for to see if this is available close to where Fort Benning is, you know, just to kind of give guys that are still active and and giving them the tools to help their peers or their subordinates. So the other book coming out on the same day, it's strange. I have two books coming out on the same day that tactical mobility with the Navy SEALs, Stu Smith and Gwen Lawrence. Um, I think that's a great complement to mindfulness activities. So yeah, it sounds like it low impact yoga exercises, breathing, um, to just get you present in the moment. And, uh, um, so I really appreciate the opportunity. I, I really enjoyed speaking to you, Robert and Kat. You guys are great and, uh, amazing. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on Nick and joining us. And, um, you know, I hope everybody gets a chance to get out there and, and take a look at your, your books and the amazing stuff that's going to be inside those to be able to help. I think there's a lot of opportunities to be able to utilize that, like Kat said, either within the military community or the community that supports the military. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, good stuff there. So again, thanks, Nick, for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four MIL, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. 
These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code mentors for mil or mentors the number 4 mil at skeletonoptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.